Hey, if you have a Bible, I want you to open it to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be there in just a moment. As uh, tonight, the theme is about living a missional lifestyle. Really want to encourage you guys uh, to be speaking the gospel. Uh, and so we're going to be there in just a moment. Question. Um, how many of you are afraid of something? Or a better question, what are you afraid of? Maybe snakes, um, spiders, uh, girls from Tennessee, um, clowns maybe. How many, of you, how many of you are afraid of heights? Anybody afraid of heights? Okay, a lot of you guys, okay. How many of you hate roller coasters? All right. How many of you love roller coasters? You live for roller coasters? Okay. I don't, I don't. So a few years ago, <clears throat> I don't like roller coasters, right? Not afraid of heights, but I don't like roller coasters. I don't like the feeling of a teenager strapping me into a roller coaster, <laughs> assuring me that it's secure. I don't trust them. Uh, but a few years ago, we went to uh, uh, amusement park in Williamsburg, Virginia, and uh, there was a particular ride there called the Griffin. And the Griffin... Uh, is basically this ride, they, they take you, I don't know, it seems like you're up in the heavens, and it's a straight drop down, and you just suspend it in the air. Um, this is at Bush Gardens, and oh, there, we got pictures, yep. And so uh, when we get to this amusement park, my father-in-law knows that I hate roller coasters, and um, he says, Tony, do you wanna ride this? And I said, no, nah. um, I'm gonna stay right here on the ground. I'm gonna like maybe shoot basketball at the little thing or whatever, uh, but I'm good, I'm good. Uh, and so, but somehow I got on this ride, and so uh, he took a close-up of me. Um, there it is. <laughs> you can see my wife next to me, who is uh, like she's just getting a pedicure or something, all, all chilled. Uh, I love the 11-year-old next to me, who is just having the time of his life. Um, Kimberly's sister, Jessica's next to her. She's in the army and she used to jump out of airplanes, so this is no thing, you know. Um, I just knew I had to close my eyes and hold my breath and just, just hold on for a few seconds. And that's a good picture of ministry. That's a good picture of uh, church planting. That's a good picture of sharing your faith. Like they're, they're, for some Christians, they have no problem serving, but when you tell them they need to speak, they get really nervous. And maybe that's you. If you feel really timid when it comes to sharing your faith with other people, that it's almost like you're going off a roller coaster, trying to hold your breath until the conversation's over, I want to encourage you tonight. You're actually the kind of people that God uses. In fact, there is a particular guy in the New Testament, he's kind of a big deal, named Paul. Paul, at one time, was very afraid to speak the gospel in Corinth. Corinth was a crazy city. You don't have to turn there, but this is what happened in Acts 18 when Paul is, is basically ready to give up. The Lord Jesus speaks to him and says this to him. Acts 18, verse 9, Jesus says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Now turn to somebody next to you and say, go on speaking. Go on speaking. That's the topic tonight, okay? All right, now stop speaking. It says, go on speaking, and here's why. Here's why you should go on speaking. It's not because you're so good at it or because you're so intimidating. He says, do not be silent. Number one promise, I'm with you. Number two, no one will attack you to harm you, which happened everywhere else except for Corinth because God gave this promise to Paul there. And then thirdly, I have many people in the city who are my people. So he says, Paul, don't stop speaking, not, not because you're, you're the best at it, but because I'm with you. 
In fact, Paul is, doesn't seem to be a very impressive individual physically. There's only one document that describes the physical appearance of the Apostle Paul. We don't know how accurate it is. A little document called Paul and Thecla, in which Onesiphorus is supposed to go find Paul based upon the following description. Paul is supposedly short in size, bald head, bow-legged, fairly well-built, his eyebrows meeting, unibrow, um, and, uh, was, was, and, and had the, the face of an angel. That's the description of that he's full of grace. Now, when, we, when he writes uh, 2 Corinthians in uh, chapter 10, the Corinthians say, Paul, when you write letters, you seem really bold and impressive. But when you show up, eh, hey, there's, there's not much to you, pal. You're not LeBron James, okay? You're maybe George Costanza. You guys know Seinfeld? That's more the description of Paul than LeBron James, or maybe somebody from the office, something like that. And so how in the world does George Costanza go around the Mediterranean world planting churches, getting beat up all over the place, like starting churches in major cities? It wasn't because of how impressive he was. The Lord was with him. The Lord gave him the message. The Lord gave him the promise. You speak and people will be saved. Like the gospel really does work. And if you're going to do anything with your life missionally, you have to have an unshakable confidence in the gospel. It really is the power of God into salvation. And that's what Paul took, and that's what you and I take. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that he's like a jar of clay. Physically, he's fragile, he's breakable, but inside he has a treasure. And it's when we unleash the gospel, lives are transformed. Now, what I like to do tonight is to talk about speaking the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul stayed in Corinth, and 10 years later, he wrote these letters to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And in this particular passage, it's just filled with expressions about the need to speak the gospel. So here's the outline tonight. Why we speak, what we speak, and how we speak. Why should we speak the gospel? What is the gospel? What do we speak? And how do we speak it? So let's hit it quickly, all right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Paul, we begin here. Paul says, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what, is due, what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, motivation number one that Paul gives, he is aware of his accountability before God. Why speak? Notice that Paul says there is going to be a judgment, and we're going to give an account for our lives. Verse 10, his whole aim in life is to please the Lord and knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing this holy awe before the Lord, he says, I'm gonna make it my aim to please him. I'm gonna persuade others. I'm gonna speak, right? He continues on in, in the next sentence and he says, what we are is known to God. A lot of people were talking smack about Paul and he says, God knows who I am and I hope it is also known to your conscience we are not commending ourselves to you again by giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outer appearance and not about what is in the heart. That's a lot of words. Basically what Paul is saying is people are judging me based on external appearances. The Lord knows my heart. And then he makes this great statement. This is a great statement from a missionary. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. How many of you know that, that missionaries are a little bit crazy? Okay, um, <clears throat> that's the kind of spirit here that Paul is conveying. He says, if I am perceived to be out of my mind, it is for the glory of God. 
Paul is just not overly concerned with what people think about him. That's the whole gist of what we just read. What Paul is very concerned about is pleasing the Lord. He's very concerned about obeying the Lord. So motivation number one, we want to fulfill the Great Commission. We want to take the gospel to the nations. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. We're going to give an account for our life, and I'm pretty sure on the last day when we stand before Jesus, he's not going to ask us questions like, did you guys get a good tan? You know, what level of uh, did you make it to on World of Warcraft? Like what's going to occupy the, the conversation, I am pretty sure, is what we did with his, his word, what we did with this commission. And so Paul says, knowing all of this, I'm about one thing, it's about glorifying Jesus. And this is why you see students, they couldn't stop Paul. Like in one place, Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like how do you stop a guy with that kind of motto? Paul, we, we don't like you, man. We're going to kill you. What does Paul say? All right, then. To die is gain. Well, Paul, we, we're not going to kill you. We're going to let you live. That'd be I right too. To live is Christ. <laughs> well, Paul, we, we really don't like your attitude. We've been thinking about it. We're going to let you live, but we're going to make you suffer. That'd be I right too, then. For I consider the sufferings of this present world not worth comparing next to the glory that is to be revealed to us. You kill me, I'll be with Christ. You let me live, I live for Christ. You make me suffer, I get a reward from Christ. What you got, bro? You see? How, how do you stop? And that is the same hope that you and I have. We just sang about it. You see, what makes a great missionary is not great ability, it's a heart. It's a heart that says, I'm about one thing, and that's Jesus Christ. I really don't care what other people think. I want to obey him. And we could just go through missionary history, and I could give you examples of this. There was this little female missionary in China named Gladys Elward. She wasn't five feet tall. She had jet black hair. Her whole life she wanted blonde hair. She even prayed as a kid that the Lord would make her hair blonde. And Gladys Elward wanted to go uh, be part of the China Inland Mission. She was a British missionary, but she got turned down like three times. Every time the people who were evaluating the missionary said, no, she's too small, she's too uneducated, She'll never make it. Well, she went anyway. And when she got to the wharf in China, she found all these little tiny people with their jet black hair that God had prepared for her. And God used Gladys Elward big time. Jim Elliott, a great famous missionary who went to South America who was martyred, they told Jim Elliott, he was a student at Wheaton College, you're too smart to be a missionary. Don't waste your life being a missionary. Jim Elliott started a missionary movement in his day. One of my favorites is a guy named John G. Patton who wanted to go be a missionary in the New Hebrides Islands. And some of the people protested. He was a well-known pastor at the time in Scotland. And they said, Patton, if you go to these islands, you will be cannibalized. That's eaten by a person. And they weren't joking. Two, two year, or 20 years before Patton, they, they cannibalized two missionaries. And Patton said, no, I'm going. And one guy protested when he said, you'll be eating my cannibals. And, and Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, it was an old guy in the church, um, you are advanced in years now and your own body is about to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten not by cannibals but by worms. And I testify to you that if I can but glorify Jesus on the great day of my resurrection, my body will, will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our re risen Redeemer. It doesn't matter to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. What matters to me is that I obey Jesus. He went, 
and he saw these cannibals converted, planted churches. What is this? This is verse 13. If we are beside ourselves, it is for the glory of God. Now, you'll never be a faithful missionary, a faithful witness, if you're just worried about being liked and being cool. You need to be bold, right? You need to be faithful. That's what we're being called to here. Second motivation, I want you to see it here in verse 14. Paul says, so it's one thing is the glory of Jesus motivates us. Second motivation, the love of Christ motivates us. He says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So what is motivating Paul here in this verse? He says, I am compelled by the love of Christ. So it's love, it's his love that saturates our hearts that compels us to go. Now, if you're honest, you may, you may say, I struggle with, with having a, 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 a sufficient love to propel me to witness. How can I increase my love for people? Well, notice this verse is actually telling us that. What does Paul think about when he thinks about love? He thinks about the cross. You see, it's the cross of Jesus that has so changed Paul that he has concluded that Christ has died for all, every type of person, the whole world. Therefore, all have died. And he says here that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who was raised. And so if we want a, a greater love, there is a missionary in the Bible who didn't have sufficient love. His name was Jonah. You know that story? God tells Jonah, you need to go to Tarshish, or to, to Nineveh rather, and Jonah flees and goes to Tarshish. It's like a, a northerner being told to go to the south and not wanting to come to the south. He's like, no, I don't like those guys. They think wrestling is real. You know, they think Earnhardt's a member of the Trinity. Uh, they... They have couches on their front porch and shoot guns all the time. I, I don't want to go to the south. That's that kind of attitude that Jonah had. And at the end of this book, you know what happens is many of the, the Ninevites repent, and Jonah gets mad that God saves these people. He says, I knew you were gracious. I knew you were merciful. That's the wrong. That is the opposite of what Paul is expressing here. It is the love of Christ that compels us to go to the New Hebrides Islands, to, to China, across the street. What motivates us? A passion for the glory of Jesus and, a, and, a, and, a com and being compelled by the love of Jesus. Now, you're gonna have opportunities, even this week at school. Maybe you can just zero in on one person. I have a friend named Matt Chandler. He's a pastor down in Dallas. Chandler tells his testimony. I love this story and it's very relevant for you as a teenager, Chandler became a Christian in high school. He was on the football team, and he said the guy who was right next to him in his locker in high school came up to Chandler and said, hey, Matt, at some point during the semester, I'm going to share the gospel with you. Just let me know when you're ready. <laughs> and Chandler said, over a period of time, this, this young little guy, Chandler's a big guy, tall guy, he invited him to go to his youth group, and Chandler was too, he was too cool for school. I mean, Chandler's that guy. Maybe you're that guy. And Chandler went, and he acted like he didn't like it. And he said, every week, I'd be, I'd be around that dude, and I'd be like, hey, man, can I get a ride? And he just kept going back, kept going back. And now everybody knows Matt Chandler, famous pastor. Nobody knows this kid who witnessed him at the locker. You never know what's going to happen in your life when you just open your mouth. You can be gracious. You can be wise. You can be winsome but you have to be compelled by love. That student loved Chandler.
And praise God, somebody loved you. They loved you enough to share the gospel with you. Notice how Paul applies this in verse 16. From now on, because of the love of Christ, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. That is, external appearance. It's not that it's unimportant, it's just not most important. We regard no one to the flesh, or regarding to the flesh. He says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we thus regard him that no longer. That is, we used to just see a Jew hanging on a cross. Not anymore. We, everything has changed. And we no longer view people just by, based on the basis of their skin, on the basis of their external appearance. Why? Because the cross has shown us what is most important in life, their soul. And so what we see when we see people is we see people in need of the gospel. It's the love of Christ that takes us to every person because every person has a soul. Every person will spend eternity somewhere. So here are two major motivation students for why speak. The glory of Jesus, we're consumed with that. We make it our aim to please him. Second motivation, the love of Jesus compels us to go. Now why do we speak? I want you to see Verses 16, uh, verses 17 down to verse 21. I'll put it in three words, okay? They each end in Asian. PlayStation is not one of them, okay? <clears throat> but regeneration, everybody say regeneration. <laughs> Big word, here's what it means, new life. New life in Christ. This is what we're proclaiming to the world, regeneration. Second Asian word, reconciliation. Reconciliation, it means that you and someone else you're at odds with each other, you come together, enemies become friends. Reconciliation. The whole world outside of Christ, they're alienated from God, they're his enemy. In Jesus Christ, you can, you can have a relationship with him. Third word, justification. Verse 21, that is, we can be right before God the judge. Now let's just look at those for just a minute. Verse 17, what are we proclaiming to the world? We're not saying, hey, come be religious like us. We're saying, come and get new life in Christ. I love verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. How many of you are glad that's true tonight? The old has passed away, and the new has come. I could just tell you story after story up here tonight of how I've seen this happen. Now, it's not the same story for everybody, but the, the effects are always the same. Some people have very dramatic testimonies. Okay, like man, they were out selling crack, and all of a sudden Jesus changed them. I got I got a friend in uh, in Ukraine. He he told me one time that the only time he ever opened the Bible, he used to be in prison. He said was to tear pages out of the Bible and put substance in it and smoke it. And now he's a pastor. But how do you go from smoking the Bible to preaching it? Right, <laughs> verse seventeen. That's how the old has passed away and the new has come. You know, you, you take a guy like uh, uh, St. Augustine, who uh, died at, in 430, not this morning, but 430 AD, famous church father from North Africa. Augustine was an absolute lust ball for 32 years. He had all kinds of women. His mother was a Christian and prayed for him, and he describes this crazy experience of hearing some kids sing a song outside. And he goes outside, and he finds a Bible and he opens the Bible. He says, I determined I was, gonna, I was gonna apply the first verse I read, which I don't always recommend, by the way. Fortunately, he didn't read. Judas hung himself. But he opened it up to Romans 13, which addressed Augustine and his sin, putting off darkness and putting on light. And Augustine became a Christian. Remarkable story. 
And then he had to deal with all his girlfriends. He tells the story. Soon after he was converted, he's going down the street, and one of his girlfriends starts chasing him. And she's like chasing him. He's like running away from her. And she's saying, Augustine, it is I, it is I. And he's like, Augustine, it is I, it is I. And he's like, eh. and he finally turns around, and he says, but it is not I. It is not I. Oh, that's what happens when you become a new creation in Christ. You get a new I. You get a new identity. When I became a Christian in college, the one guy I wanted to be a Christian more than anyone else was my dad. My dad was a good man, but he had absolutely no interest in religion. I would have talks with dad. He would get mad. You're just trying to convert me, son. And I would say, yeah, I am, dad. Uh, I'll just give you my agenda right now. And it took a long time. Eventually, I was at my parents' home about eight and a half years ago in Kentucky around Thanksgiving, and my dad said, son, I think I'd like to go to church. And I thought lightning was about to hit somewhere. And I said, well, that's great, dad. And he says, yeah, I just wanna go somewhere where they teach the Bible because there aren't a lot of people around here that actually teach and I wanna learn something. And I was like, I don't understand what's happening here. But I got pumped, I told my mom about it. Next thing I know, my dad starts visiting churches. He has a little Kindle and he, he orders the Bible for his Kindle. He orders a book on how to read the Bible on his Kindle. He starts texting me sermon outlines. He starts giving an offering. I'm like, now I know this, this is serious. At final eight game, UNC played UK and he skipped that game on Sunday night to go to church. Oh, that, that's big. And eventually, pastor comes over to his house and says, Gary, don't you think it's about time for you to give your life to Christ and be baptized? And my dad says, yeah. He says, but I'd really like for my son to baptize me. He says, I don't know if he can. You know, he's really busy. He calls me up and I say, yeah, I think I got time for that, dad. And I stood in this little church of about 60 people. And my dad stands up. He's 59 years old, retired factory worker, never graduated high school. And my dad says, I believe Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. And I'd never really hugged my dad before. And in this baptistry, I baptized my dad. I said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, my brother and my father. And I take him under. I, I hold him under a little longer because he can't swim. And I wanted him to, I wanted him to feel what death was like. It's what baptism is a picture of. It's like, in there, pop him up, big hug. Absolutely amazing. He comes over to my house in Raleigh about six months later and he says, son, I've read through the whole Bible. I'm like, are you serious? He said, yeah. He said, I love the New Testament. I don't understand the Old Testament, but I love the New Testament. I was like, don't worry about it, dad, we don't either, we're just faking it, right? Just, no, I said, just keep reading, just keep reading, you'll get it. How's this happen? Because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's what we're offering to the world. Now notice, what happens next here in verse 18? Reconciliation. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ, not holding our trespasses against us, but, but it's, it's put our sin, put our shame, put our penalty upon Jesus, reconciling us to himself. I love this first phrase here. All of this is from God. Salvation is from God. Only God can write these stories. Only God can do this, man. I was just texting with a friend of mine, Harvey, backstage. He's a pastor in Reno. 
It's one of my best friends. We're, I'm, I'm going to see him tomorrow, actually. We're going to celebrate my birthday. And we were talking about plans for tomorrow afternoon. And I, I just, again, marveling at the grace of God in this kid's life. He literally sold drugs and was a breakdancer and a rapper. He was a battle rapper in Reno. And Harvey got saved. And he started a Bible study for his buddies on Friday night that grew so big, he had to rent out an auditorium in a church building. He had like 100 dudes at one time in his house trying to do his Bible study on Romans. That's the book he picked first. And eventually he had to plant a church. He planted a church because so many people were getting saved through his ministry. How in the world does this sort of thing happen? Because all of this is from God. God is in the business of working salvation in the midst of the earth. And what we're holding out to the world is that you don't have to be alienated from God. You can have peace with God. You can be reconciled to God. Thirdly, notice what it said here in verse 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We'll come back to that phrase in a moment. It's a great phrase. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And there's justification. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what the reformer Martin Luther called the great exchange. Christ takes our place. He takes our sin. He takes our penalty. And by faith in Jesus, we receive his righteousness. We are declared righteous, counted righteous, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. You see, here's the message of the Bible. Only righteous people are going to heaven. Problem? None of us are righteous. Therefore, we need someone else's righteousness. And the good news of the gospel is by faith in Jesus, his righteousness is credited to us. As God sees us, he sees us through the blood of Christ, through the obedience of Christ. His righteousness is ours. He takes our sin. He takes our penalty. He takes our judgment. We receive his forgiveness and we receive his righteousness. And we stand now clothed in his righteousness. His righteousness has been, as we say in theology, imputed to us. Probably not a word you use this morning. Right? No one says, I imputed cream cheese onto my bagel. But that's, that's what it means, to take from somewhere else and apply to us. And so now God sees us as righteous. Just as he said to Jesus at his baptism, this is my beloved son, in him I am well pleased. This is what he says to us now. We are in Christ we are hidden in him. We are found in him. He is our righteousness. And this is, this is the gospel that changes lives. And this is why we have to take it to the ends of the earth, because every other world religion, every other default mode of the human heart is a works-based righteousness. You have to do it. You have to earn it. You have to climb the steps. My wife and I went to Rome this past year, and we went to this church called the Church of the Holy Steps, where it says outside on a sign that if you pray up these steps, like 22 steps, these steps were taken from uh, Jerusalem, supposedly, where Jesus was crucified, and if you will pray up these steps on a certain date of the year, your sins will be fully atoned for. And we were sitting here looking at these people praying up steps, Believing in these steps. Well, you don't have to believe in this particular view of salvation, but every other system of religion and faith has their own version of the holy steps. The point is you've got to do it to earn or merit salvation. And the good news of the gospel is Jesus already went up the steps. Jesus already did the work for us. 
He already died the death we should have died. And the good news of the gospel is by faith in him, his righteousness gets credited to us. So what are we holding out to the world? We're saying to them, regeneration. You can have new life in Christ. We're holding out to the world, reconciliation. You can be friends with Christ, not at odds with Christ. And we're holding out justification. You are declared righteous before God because of Christ. And this is why we've got to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. You see, students, many people don't have a passion for missions because they don't have a gospel worth preaching. Until you really understand the gospel, you will never really have that passion for missions. And it's just very important that we're seeing in a text here all about speaking the gospel that Paul is laying forth for us a beautiful doctrine of salvation. And I just want to encourage you to plunge yourself into the doctrine of salvation. We talked about adoption last night. I'm giving you three more words tonight. It's all the same gospel, different beauties of it. Well, that's what we speak. We speak the good news. Now, let me give you the final piece. How do we speak? Back through the text here, first of all, we speak persuasively. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, if you're going to persuade people, number one, you need to kind of know what you're talking about. So let me just encourage you here. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you check your door at the brain, and you, uh, your, your brain at the door, rather, and you no longer need it. No, you need it. You need to study. You need to learn. And persuasion also means you have to be patient. It takes a long time sometimes for people to believe. Remember how patient God was with you. So be patient. Be persuasive. Notice also down in the text here that Paul said in verse 20 that God is making his appeal through us. So we make our appeal persuasively, but we also make it boldly. He makes his appeal through us. We are his ambassadors. The other place where this word ambassador appears is in Ephesians 6, 18 to 20, also in a context about speaking the gospel. And there Paul asked the Ephesian church, pray for me so that when I open my mouth, words may be given to me that I may open my mouth with boldness. And so again, if you feel timid, if you feel shy, you're in good company. Paul felt this. And what did he do? He prayed that God would give him boldness that God would make his appeal through us. You know, I, I love the, uh, the scene in, in the movie The Lion King where you've got these two lions. You've got this little lion named um, Simba and the big lion named Mufasa. And there's this one scene where the hyenas uh, corner Simba <clears throat> and they say, let us hear your roar, Simba. And you remember what Simba does? He opens his mouth and it's like, and this happens two or three times, and then eventually he opens his mouth, and what you hear is this gigantic, boo, and it's the, it's the voice of his father. Well, in many ways, this is what we're praying for when we preach the gospel, is that when we open our mouth, they don't hear our voice, they hear the voice of the father. Pray for me, that when I open my mouth, I may do so with boldness. The righteous are as bold as a lion, the writer of Proverbs says. We make our appeal persuasively, boldly, passionately, and sacrificially. If we had time, we would linger down into chapter 6, where Paul lays, forward, lays forth for us the sacrifice that he has put forward in making the gospel known. And I just want to encourage you tonight, students. It's not about your intellect. It's not about your gifting. It's about your desire. Maybe you're the next Gladys Elward, the next Jim Elliott, the next John G. Patton. 
Maybe the Lord has for you a mission field in your own high school and he's gonna give you a great harvest. But what you need is a certain motivation. You need to be consumed with the glory of Christ, the love of Christ. You need to have a grasp of the gospel that we're holding out to the world. And you need to go forth with boldness, patience, winsomeness, and may the Lord use you. Well, that's my prayer for you tonight. That God would use us to be his missionaries. Right where he has us. Until he moves us somewhere else. And one day we'll see him, like Paul talks about. And on that day, we will not regret having been obedient to Jesus Christ. We will be glad we did. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for these students. I pray as you give us opportunities to speak your word, you would grant us grace. That you would enable us, you would empower us. You would so fill our hearts with the love of your glory and so flood our hearts with a sense of your love that we would be compelled to speak this good news to this broken world in need. So I pray maybe there's just one, one person on each, each person's heart, even tonight. Lord, would you give us opportunities? When you give us those opportunities, would you give us boldness? When you give us those opportunities, would you give us the right words to say? Would you use us for your glory? Would you raise these students up and make them faithful servants in the church and in the world? We wanna give you our lives tonight. We wanna give it to you and say, use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.